Live from Red Bull Studios, New York. I'm in love with my life. Hi, you're listening to Hey Cool Job, a podcast about jobs. My guest today is Phil Chang, a brand strategist and creative director, both titles that can mean so much and often nothing at all. He used to be at Wyden Kennedy, strategizing with the likes of Jordan Brand and Nike, and consults for Asian Culture Lab 88 Rising, takes photographs, and in his spare time makes very short-run streetwear for people like me. Phil. Hi, Mary. (laughs) Is is it weird to hear like the intro about yourself? Is it like a eulogy, a eulogy? It's funny, like which part, like because like everything is like NDA life now. Yeah. Like what parts, like can be public facing. Latch onto what parts you'll latch onto, and like (laughs) it's good. That was Minya being our dear friend, misinfo. Yeah. Um. So let's start where we should. I know that you talk about this a lot. Um on social, but let's break it down for here. So brand strategist and creative director, like both feel hardcore like fake news. Yeah, like super ideas economy, yeah, yeah, yeah. hyper millennial. Totally, I mean, it sounds like an experiential marketeer. Yeah. <laughs> so like- <laughs> I'm a visionary. <laughs> how are these not fantasy made up titles for people who refer to themselves as brands? Sure, I, th- I think like uh, broadly, they do belong to like the subset of careers that were like built by you know, increasingly ab- com- companies with like increasingly abstract value propositions to like clients they would serve. Mm. So, in a sense, they are kind of like fantasy titles that were used to like inflate billings or things like that. But uh, the point being, I think you have to kind of like define for yourself over the course of your career what they mean to you. Um, if you like, at all care about being able to explain to your mom what you do. Right, or like, your Korean mom. <laughs> yeah, your Korean mom. Or like uh, just, you know, be able to, uh, as a freelancer, go into a room and be like, here's what I do in two minutes. Mm. So if you were to break that down, like what is the actual verb that you do? Okay, sidebar. This is highly unorthodox and I've never done it before on the show, but Phil felt like he didn't do his answer justice. So I actually gave him a do-over and here it is. So to answer that, we have to, we have to kind of zoom out and ask what brand is first, right? Um, the mistake people often make, I think, is that they use the words company and brand kind of interchangeably when actually they're not the same thing. Uh, a company is not a brand, a company has a brand. Um, so the big question then again is what is a brand and really a brand is just any entity's point of view and that point of view is informed by like your priorities, your concerns, your interests, your values, all of that. Um, so really all brand strategy is then is defining that point of view. It's asking why do we exist and why should people care? Creative direction On top of that is figuring out what can we do or make that fulfillingly answers those questions. So literal example, Uh, Nike's brand is about peerlessly empowering athletes, right? So what's a creative articulation of that point of view? Uh, Something like like Flyknit, right? 
they've applied that to everything from shoes to like swim trunks to sports bras. It's demonstrably improved the product. And so the rest of the category follows suit. You get Adidas coming in next with Prime Knit. And then, you know, now we have Skechers with like their own weird version of it. So yeah, brand strategy is, you know, what is our point of view? Why do we exist? And then uh, creative direction is how do we uh, manifest answers to those questions in real life? So true or false, we are all brands. Damn. Um, cynically true. Ugh, that gives me douche chills. But I think I've, I recognize that on some level as being true. Cynically true. And, uh, you know, like we can all be like, nah, and like protest. But if you're on any social media platform and you like care about it beyond like just having the username and not doing anything with it, you are expressing your point of views, like your values, your concerns, your interests, your lifestyle. All of that gets presented in some kind of cohesive fashion. And, you know, whether or not you're a good curator of that dun, is, dun, dun, curator. <laughs> is, is whatever. But, like, uh, regardless, you're communicating a specific set of viewpoints to everyone else. Right, through those conduits. Which, by definition, is, like, what a brand is. So, oh, also you're banging on the table. My fault. It's okay. Um, true or false, brands on Twitter are just like you and me. Uh, I think brands on Twitter can be just like you and me. But who is even doing it well? I mean, it's Well, disgusting. that's when people are, like, super stoked on it. Like, when people go rogue on social media accounts, like, clearly, oh, it, like, and everyone's like, oh, shit, like, someone was running the RB social media. <laughs> and, like, this dude is, like, wilding out. Like, it's about to get fired, and yeah, they know it. Like, the thing of last week, like, the McDonald's Hong Kong thing before it was yes. outed as a fraud. Like an elaborate hoax. Like for a long time, too. For a long time, I was like, yo, someone is in his red monkey issued, uh, a Visu issued McDonald's Hong Kong uniform <laughs> and wilding out about like uh, a girl who dumped him and like blasting Evanescence in Lincoln Park. Rest in peace, Chester. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Yeah. Um, I mean, like, but the singularity is definitely going to involve brands, right? That's kind of where we're at. Yeah. Brands are going to be sentient. When I have, like, a nightmare about what, like, dystopia and, like, the Terminator, you know, end state actually is, it's, like, um, like this massive, massive fucking robot, but it has, like, a, a nice face because that's what the algorithm optimized for, and it has, like, a giant Amazon logo, and it just comes and, like, eats you and turns you into, like, mulch. I think that's totally happening right now yeah. outside of these walls. It's not going to look like, you know, evil death robots. It's going to be like happy was, smiley face emojis. With like emojis. those NASCAR elements, totally. yeah, with the branding. Like wild brand logos everywhere and like a smiley face because audiences are like that. Jesus. So, what brands do you like? Uh, what brands do I like? Um, or brands that brand well. Brands that brand well. I think Bandcamp is awesome. Okay, why? Bandcamp is like the only platform, like this is kind of getting myself in trouble, where I've bought like music legally for like, <laughs> like ever in a why? long time. I don't know, like I just, you know, I, I really love how they commit to staying super independent and while like SoundCloud flails, they're just like, I don't know, we just like created a platform where, you know, musicians are, can charge what they want. I'm stoked, like it's pretty, it's like, a, as far as I know, it's a fairly equitable split in terms of revenue share and stuff like that. And they've kind of created this thing where it's like we're not so focused on like hyper growth that we can just kind of be a nice summer camp for like musical artists. Who underwrites it? I have no idea. I think they bootstrapped a lot of it. I'm sure they've taken financing of some sort, but I don't think it's like 
based on you know just like how long they've been around. Right, they have been at, around at for the a scale while. that they've subsisted at forever. The small scale. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, totally. It's n- it, obviously no one's like it's not like a VC or something that's putting pressure on them to be like you need to hit one trillion users by quarter two, otherwise, you know, it's not looking good for your trajectory. Blah blah blah. So what is a brand where you're just like, oh my God, someone give me this brand because you're branding so poorly. Like, I hate this, the way you brand. Um, a brand that is branding poorly. Um, Get in trouble. <laughs> yeah. I Burn mean, our bridge. I, I did this with, uh, I did this with Adidas um, not too long ago. And I think Adidas is riding off, um, a ton of hype and like a strategy that is ultimately super expensive and unsustainable. Yes, but they have turned the tide, which is not something you could have ever imagined for Adidas however I, I, long ago against Nike. I think you could turn the tide, but it's like expensive to keep that tide turned, like the way they're doing it. And um, y- what you know. would you do differently? Well, I think. Uh, and actually, if you could simplify what they're doing and what you would do differently with specificity, that would be great. Sure. I think Adidas is just, um, you know, they were like, well, we can't beat Nike at their game, so we'll play in a different lane, which is a smart thing initially, right? It's mm. like, but the way they went about it was, let's call everyone and see if they want to collaborate on like a series. And they did it the right way, which was like, let people actually design new shoes, including like outsoles and stuff, which Nike would never let you do. Like Nike, when you collaborate with them, you're often lucky if you get like an ID, like a colorway. Um, so Adidas was smart in letting people like Raph Simmons, Rick Owens, Jeremy Scott, whoever, like just go like, just wild out with their silos. But I don't think if you look at any of those things, people are looking at those shoes and are like stoked that it's an Adidas. They're not buying it because it's an Adidas. It's because of the other person after the X, right? Right. In fact, for a long time, the argument could be that it was in spite of it being exactly right. Yeah. And like, if those shoes had a swoosh on them, frankly, I think they could sell for like 30, 40% more. Hmm. Um, And so you've got the strategy that's like hinged on, on collaboration. Uh, But those partnerships are really expensive to sustain. But isn't that the the business model for literally everything right now? I don't think so. I think Nike does collaboration really poorly right now. But what they're what like what they've managed to do is hold on to Just Do It, which is arguably the strongest brand of all time. Absolutely. And uh, you don't cut your teeth at Wyden and Kennedy without believing that. No, that's <laughs> that's the Wyden Kool Aid. Bless up, Dan Wyden. One time, um, only man in the universe with a three word resume. But like, uh, yeah, like Nike, because they have that core truth, is like, uh, (laughs) um, they're able to weather the tide. And if they don't actively fuck up, Mm, that's true, they'll be fine in the long run. So, okay. So you went to Dartmouth. Yeah. What did you go to school for? I went to school for English. And then like, because the English department is so big there, my folk, you have to have a focus. Mm. Mine was on creative writing. Oh, <laughs> meow. <laughs> well, how did you really thinking ahead? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like job. Job yeah. good. Um, so monster.com. <laughs> oh, God, seriously. What made you pivot into like agency? Because Wyden and Kennedy was your first job out of college, right? Wyden and Kennedy was my first job out of college. How? Um, they don't really. Wyden's like a very like we'll we'll call you kind of place. Yeah, no, for sure. So. Um, I had done, like, my, my college thesis was an album and a magazine on youth culture. Um, and it floated around the internet. 
And because I, this was in response to me like being, you know, super stubborn and not wanting to do like a book of short stories and poems. And so I did this album. I like, I love that you were like, because I was basically a hype beast. Yeah. <laughs> like there's actually like hype beasty like records on there. And like this magazine on youth culture and someone at Wyden saw it and was like, you should come and talk to the team in Portland. So I flew, they flew me out there uh, with like a bunch of other people who they'd been looking at at the time. Um, That's kind of frightening. Really is. Like yeah. you have no idea what's happening. And again, everything is so, you know, like this is a brand strategist. That's an account director. This is a copywriting and AD team. Like you don't know what any of these things mean. Like PNL, blah, blah, blah. Um, and also like if you've been to the Wyden Portland office, it's like that as like your first impression of what a workplace environment is, is just like cracked. Yeah. You're just like, what, what is this? Uh, it's just like, you know, it's not at all what you imagine an office to be like. What does it look like? Wyden Portland brainchild of John Jay. Um, John Jay who wears shirts that are the whitest white I've ever seen in nature. How does he starch him? I have no idea. We got to ask him next time we see him. Um, and he's always worn, the, like, a question I have for John, if he ends up listening to this, is, like, he's worn the same Maharishi belt since, like, the day I met him. That is such It's the a one move. thing that's, like, been consistent. So I'm, like, to this day, I just haven't figured out, like, how to ask him about it. Um, he just looks, he, like, looks like the most expensive person. Yeah. In, like, in like a great way. He's, like, a, he's, like, he's, like, Vivian Westwood pirate you know, come the garçon fantasy come to life. And he has the head of a lion. Like his profile is that of a lion. Like super late 80s, John Woo, <laughs> Chow Yun-Fat. Amazing. The killer style hair. Yeah, totally. Forever. Um, um, but Wyden Portland looks like if you made like a Death Star out of out of timber. So like really Portland. Very Portland. Yeah. Like quintessentially. So, okay. So you were at Wyden for how many years? Uh, I was at Wyden for five and a half years. So, wow, it's longer than I thought. I thought it was yeah. like four. Um Almost a sabbatical length. Right. Interesting word choice. Freud well, that's what Freud they call it. Okay. Um, and it's one of those like situations where everyone sort of knows about it and knows that it's down with Nike, obviously because of the Portland connection. But like, what did you actually learn there? Um, I learned that um, even in, you know, advertising ultimately is a client services business. Um, like no matter how people want to glorify it and be like, you know, it's like art, da, 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 da it's still you're serving the needs of a client. And so what I learned is that even um, even in that model and even at a scaled business like Wyden, you can still figure out a way to maintain um, integrity. So for instance, like uh, there was a point when I was at Wyden um, when you know the whole industry was starting to get worried about, ooh, the kid in the middle of nowhere with an internet connection who can do what we do in minutes and, you know, have a YouTube channel and have a social media following. And get what like, year is this? This is like 2010, 11. Okay. So we've gone through eight and nine and people are still a bit shaky. Yeah. Well, eight and nine, I think people were just shook by like the, the financial crisis. But it was a seismic upheaval that reverberated in everything. That's right. And then, you know, I think it yielded just like, I think the circumstances of the crash led to uh, a lot of people just trying to figure out their own thing. And so it did create like this whole crop of quote unquote content creators and things like that who were just like, 
I can't go through intermediaries. I really have to figure out what to do with this platform on my own. Right, like, like cottage thing, industries unto themselves. Right, this yeah. thing that I can sign up for free. So the ad industry starts freaking out about that because obviously they, like anyone can do your job for like much cheaper and much quicker. Why wouldn't a client go for that? Um, but what I did, so Wyden started looking at, you know, like they had never ever considered this kind of thing before, but like they started looking at working with banks, so on and so forth, like clients in categories that they would never have looked at Like just previously. blue chips ass institutions. Yeah, like Wyden will never do a pharma ad. Right. Pharma is like at the big, big public shops where you like go to retire forever and live in Connecticut and like have kids and go to soccer practice. Um, it's when your soul gets really expensive. Really expensive. Yeah. Um, and so, but not John Jay expensive, like different. <laughs> so we started looking at financial services clients and the, like none of the work was hitting cause none of us were like there to do that. And like, none of us cared about it. And it was like, just like, it wasn't going to work ever mm. with the way Wyden works, the, what, the things we believe in all that stuff. Uh, and so I remember like towards the end of a pitch, um, like it just wasn't hitting. And then Dan like literally flew in from Portland like looked at it like nights before the presentation and then uh, was just like, yeah, the work's fine. It's just like, this is like our process isn't aligned with how these people want the work to come out and like what kind of work they want in the world and so on and so forth. So straight up just called them and like canceled it. And what could have been like just a massive, like keep the lights on, on its own account uh, for Wyden, New York. Um, and so that, you know, at the time I'm like, my mid twenties and I'm like, Oh shit. Like you can, you can just do that. You can say no, you can like hold on to like things that are absolute values to you. So Wyden really taught me that like no matter the money, no matter like whatever it is that like is appealing to you about a job that like could potentially make you question your principles or whatever, there is still a way for you to be like, and in an, ad, an industry as like, you know, quite frankly is uh hoary as, advertising can be, yeah. um, you can keep some principles intact. Um, well, actually, that, that comes to my follow-up question, of which I have many. Um, but no, I was going to ask if you can learn whatever you did learn at Wyden elsewhere. And it kind of sounds like you kind of maybe can't because you do need that sort of safety place from which to then turn around and say no. It's a very different sort of prospect. Wyden is super unique in the sense that it's a privately held agency that operates at the scale of the publicly held ones. So meaning that Wyden still reserves the right for like self-determination and like if we're not going to do it, we're not going to do it. They can say that. Whereas like if you worked at like a Digitas or like a Saatchi or whatever, it's like you're kind of beholden to like the big umbrella companies that, you know, have bought you or whatever. So would um, you necessarily suggest to someone who wanted to bravely ford the rivers that you have and, and walk in your shoes that they should take an agency job out of college first or what? Um, I would say that the things that I mentioned that the industry was starting to get worried about in like 2010, 2011, uh, the early 10s as they were, <laughs> um, those things have started to really mature and come into fruition. And so I think... In my opinion, like I have a really, really, really bullish outlook on where the advertising industry is headed. Like, a when financial situations get bad, marketing is the first uh, cost cost that gets cut. Um, and so, I, I think a lot of agencies, uh, like especially the bigger shops, are starting to scramble and try to figure out like what the hell do we do to like pivot away from our dependence on you know um, margins and client um, client fees and so on and so forth. 
And I don't think anyone has a really good answer because these ships are fucking enormous and mm. you can't turn them very easily and quickly. And there's a whole bunch of other people who are willing to like peck away at the things that you have, um, that you thought you had as like a giant account and just like piece by piece take them away and kind of like, um, you know, uh, death by a thousand cuts you. Mm. Um, so basically your advice to someone just coming out of college right now about whether or not they should take an agency job is the shrug ASCII. Uh, no, I would say don't do it. Oh, okay. I would straight up say don't do it. Um, uh, unless you, obviously there are like exceptions to any rule, but like for me, it's like if you're, if you're coming out of school and being like, huh, advertising might be an interesting thing to get into. Don't do the agency job. Okay. So in terms of why you left, why I left Wyden? Yeah. Why? Um, so I'm on my second Red Bull. <laughs> Shout out to the sponsor. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So orange or yellow? Yellow. Orange it, tastes like medicine. Hmm. Sometimes that's good though. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Why did you quit? Uh, I quit. Um, so Neil Arthur, who was the guy who brought me in, was the director of strategy when I first came to Widen in 08. Um, and then he went on to become the managing director of the office. And, you know, we talked and ultimately a, a company called Spring Studios had reached out to me and was like, hey, we got 300,000 square feet of usable space in the heart of Soho. Uh, do you want to come be the creative director of this space? Um, and I couldn't really say no to that because it's like... It's such a fun-shaped riddle to play with. I mean... You know, if you don't live in New York, you don't know this, but like 300,000 square, square feet of space is like, it's not even a number that you really like imagine practically. No, I mean, if you actually do a little dotted line, it is all of Soho. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, it's like so huge. We're talking like a city block. Right. And like a big city block. So, you know, I had been wanting to do more experiential stuff at Widen anyways, because I thought that was starting to be like an interesting... Immersive experience? No, I'm kidding. Yeah, immersive experience <laughs> like no other, as our friend Kenzo Digital says. Um, An organic yeah. immersive experience. Well, no, I thought, Shout out to Kenzo. I yeah, love Kenzo. Bless up, Kenzo. Um, I thought that experiences would be a nice way to kind of like do things for an audience that could immediately be at a thing, but also like, you know, a great way to generate hashtag content that could, you know... Um, induce FOMO in millions of people, but also just like, you know, it's just a, it's, I, th I thought it was a great way to like kill two birds with one stone at least. So when you left to do that, there was no in-between time? No. So yeah, uh, they kind of were like, when can you start? And, you know, uh, they were going to give me a creative director title. Um, and, you know, obviously, uh, like a lot of money. Yeah. <laughs> so... Um, what is that like? So uh, for me, comparatively at the time, and I was like... And Wyden pays well, no? Wyden does not pay well. Wyden is... Um, also, you're talking to a writer, but continue. I'll, I'll be straight up with you. Like, my first salary at Wyden was $45,000. Oh, that's staggeringly low. Yeah, this is I mean, it's, it's princely for, like, editorial, but yeah. 2008. For um, agency. That was my, that was my entry-level salary. Like, um, my... The guy who's like basically my big brother, Stu, who was working in like private equity at the time, like his weekly stipend for food was like more than what I would make in a month. So like I'd just go over to his house and he'd like buy me food from Whole Foods. Um, that it was it was like that. But so the point being like um, 
by the time that I left, it was just like a set of things in this offer that I couldn't say no to. And how did how did they take you quitting? Oh, Neil, like, I mean, everyone at Wyden is very self-aware about that. Like, the thing about Wyden, like, they don't pay because they are really, like, the best shop in the game. And it does give you, like, Wyden is one of the few places where it, it does give you that chip that you can cash in anywhere for multiples. Like, very mm. few places legitimately give you that. And Wyden, like, just the name, the cachet the name holds is, like, you can, you can take that anywhere and flip it. Um, and so everyone is very cognizant of that fact and neil was super super supportive of the whole thing he came to the first show that i creative directed there and um you know brought nice yeah brought like you know the head of the portland office um and you know it was like widen is very much like a family situation so when you're ready to graduate they're very good about the whole thing that is nice that's classy so you can't ask for a better first job honestly and in terms of spring studios how was that Spring Studios, uh, I mean, without getting too much into it, like, it, it was just like a, without getting into like the gray legality things that like plagued them for a long time too, uh, it was just like they bit off way more than they could chew. It's a lot of space. They came into New York trying to be like, you know, we're going to destroy milk. And it's like, what do you, like... But why? Yeah, I always, I always like harp on the thing. Like, make sure your brand and your make sure your product is good. Make sure your brand is better. Milk, whatever you feel about it, has an incredibly strong brand. Like that's very woven into New York. Absolutely. And in terms of what milk means in you know with the sort of dissolving of like the fashion tents mm-hmm. and like decentralizing fashion week, like milk did a lot. It did a lot. Like again, no and, matter what you and think no about it. No one was it, really trying to go over there. <laughs> that's right. No yeah. one was really messing with it ex- unless you got like some like random PR person's like invite to whatever. Right. <laughs> um so you'd like go up the elevators one time and be like where am I? But like Or you or you walk past the building, you're like, I was there for a party, but now it's this other thing and now what is it? Yeah, totally. But when you talk about New York culture, it's like very woven into it. Sure. Um it's a thing people know whether or not they've participated in something milk did or not. And so to come in and try to like uh throw a lot of money at that in an effort to beat it, that was not the way to do it. That's the one thing I really reliably love about New York, watching people throw a lot of money at it. Mm-hmm. And it not sticking. Mm-hmm. It's it's kind of like foolproof. It's foolproof. Like it's the thing that I think is saving us from suffering the same fate as San Francisco. Right. Well, ugh, a thorny different podcast. Um. So what do you do now? You're you're freelance now, no? Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm freelance now. So. And when you decided to go freelance, like how much? money like how much runway did you sort of have before you're like okay this is good i can do this um not a lot what was a real turning point to me was my friends hector and ricardo uh who were um creative directors on in apple's internal marketing department because you guys all hang out together and get the same newsletter and have lunch well they're all wide and they're both wide okay guys. got it <laughs> um like Rick really took me under his wing when I started at Wyden. Um, he was like the guy running Jordan and Nike creatively. I've heard of both these things. Yeah. And, um, you know, they wound up at Apple um, because they're awesome and were, you know, working on a two, super top secret project there. And I was ca- trying to figure out, like, what am I doing after spring because it ended kind of not great. Mm. Um, and so uh, I was kind of, you know, listlessly floating for a second. 
um, and Rick and Hector called me and they were like, hey, we're building like a small team out here to work on this super secret launch that we're doing. Um, do you want to come out and work on it? And, you know, obviously like the opportunity was great, but I wasn't in a position to say no anyways. Um, so uh, Apple is really unique in the sense that they don't really negotiate with you. Interesting. Literally, they're just like, you know, if they're talking to you, they're talking with you and under the assumption that you're coming out like in a week. It's like, just name your number and come out. Right. So it was, I, you know, I called Hector kind of being like, you know, what do I, what do I say to that? And they're just like, it's not like a negotiation. Just like you go to there. Yeah. You go, you go to there, like fill out the forms and come out. <laughs> so all that to say, um, that experience really changed my life from like a runway perspective. Um, it put me in a position where I had the luxury of like uh, taking some bets that maybe wouldn't pan out or like trying some things that I other, otherwise wouldn't have tried afterwards. So on that note, how do you decide who to consult for? Um, you know, obviously, if you know, you're in a position where you're strapped for cash, it's kind of just like whatever comes down the pipeline, you kind yeah, of got to make work. Yeah, but that's not you no right so, but that's what i'm saying like everyone's been there <laughs> right so like that's 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 that but uh if you you know you know you you find yourself in a position where you do have the luxury of choice i think uh for me it's like is this something that feels super masochistic like is it something that just seems so outlandishly difficult and like horrible that i just want to try it for the sheer curiosity or is it like a brand that I'm really into like that, you know, if Lego called me tomorrow, I'd be like, get me on the plane. Of course. Um, Lego's amazing. Lego's amazing. And it's like this, like the more and more you try to like break into it, like the organization, they just like do not respond. It's incredible. It is Do you isolate organizations that you want to Hell break yeah. into and then just. Hell yeah. Like people really, really shit on LinkedIn, but I'm like, <laughs> yo, I just. All the humans are there. I search for, and it's also because no one expects to be hit up on LinkedIn. <laughs> like, so I just search for the company and then look at everyone I have like mutual connections with, or I think is like instrumental to like decision-making at that business, add them aggressively. And then I just cold message them. And that has helped me so many times over. Jesus. Uh, in regards to picking up clients. And how does that make you not want to walk into the shower with all your clothes on? Like, how are you that, like, just... Because in th that instance, I'm looking at, like, businesses that I want to work with anyways, and I just mm. don't have, like, a plug. That's an important piece of advice. So, so given how nebulous your title can be and how you almost have to define your value once you get to a location, yeah. how do you even decide how much to charge? Um, I mean, obviously Apple's like, here, here's some money, yeah. but like someone else. I mean, I have a standard day rate that I've just like worked out over time, like just doing the math of what I need like month to month. Um, and, you know, there's no real hard science to that. You just got to figure it out for yourself. And frankly, I wish there was more transparency in like discussing like, especially amongst freelancers, what you charge, what you make, because... Oh, people call me all the time and I tell them all the time. And in fact, I will price them. I'm like, mm, you're kind of this. I do too, but I feel like the next question is like, you're going to ask me what I charge on air. And I'm like... Mm. Well, I'm going to ask you what you charge on air, but how about it not be what you <coughs> charge now? But what would... What would the you post-Wyden, post-Spring Street or Spring Studios, 
What would that day day rate be? That was like a very confused, like I have no idea what to actually charge thing. And the gap between that and Apple was like short enough that like I never really figured it out. Okay. I'm trying to figure out a really slippery way to ask you this. Um, Do you ever charge if someone bullshits you and do you? Okay, here's my question. Do you charge your day rate just to have a meeting? No, no. Uh, So I'll I know a lot of people who do. Um, For me, it's like, you know, I recognize that a day rate is, you know, like they're able to pay you more because they're bringing you in for less time, like a, a focused amount of time to get like a specific objective done. So for me, like setup meetings and stuff, it's like, no, you're, that's not fair to anybody. So I'm just trying to get like an assessment for, I'm not going to like go in for like four setup meetings, but like <laughs> one. Right. And I think that's actually probably a really good rule of thumb because you wouldn't take a setup meeting with someone who you wouldn't work with. That's right. And also if you go into that first one, and you don't charge, but it seems really <clears throat> not figured out. No harm, no foul. Totally. But you wouldn't go in for a second meeting. No, because there was nothing actionable that was. That's right. That transpired. So, what is one piece of advice you want to give to people like super new to like that invoice life? Um, be very clear about what it is that you offer. Like, <clears throat> have all your shit figured out so that it doesn't matter what the client doesn't have figured out so on and so forth like no like make yourself the constant in the equation so that you know that you're not you know messing up the dynamic on your end like you so could the have bill done of more sale is so clear yeah like yeah. you know and that's also it also goes a long way because you know freelancing is increasingly the, the the way of the way things are so if the competitive set to you is increasing and widening you want to make sure that you stand out. And if someone can remember what you do because you explain it to them in like a minute 30, two minutes flat, they're probably going to, you're probably going to be top of mind over someone else who maybe took forever to kind of get through it and like didn't really like, you know, get along with them, so on and so forth. How much prep do you do for just an informational meeting that you may or may not get paid for? Uh, it depends on the situation. Um, for me, but generally not much. Like I'm going in to really learn exactly what it is you're trying to get me to do. And often, um, jobs are vague because there's a lot of ND, again, NDA life. So mm-hmm. like you're going in there and you often are not even going to have enough information in an initial email to be like, yeah, this is like what I can study up on before I go in. So, you know, given what you do and on the topic of billing, do you have friends who basically ask you to check out their website or their business plan and actually just basically ask for free consulting advice? All the time. How do you navigate that? Um, if they're really good friends, then I, you know, shit on them. I'm like, what's what's really good? Like, what are we talking about? Right. Um, but do you do it? Yeah, I'll do it. I'll do it, but I'll give them shit. Okay. And then, but you have to be like a really, really, really good friend for me to do that. And then, you know, if it's like some casual acquaintance thing or like someone I know through someone else, I'll just be clear from the beginning. I'll be like, look. We can have one meeting about this just so I can assess what it is you're asking me. Um, but post that, I need to give you, we need to, we need to sign something so that everything's like on the level. Okay. And how do you, do you ever negotiate like a barter system if it's like a clothing brand that you really like and like, or do you always get paid in money? Oh, oh, um, like work for trade? Yeah. Work for trade. Only when I model. Fair. <laughs> no. Very fair. Uh, no, I uh, I never work for trade uh, unless it's like 
No, that's not true. It, like, if it if it is something I really really like, like if Errolson called me tomorrow and was like, "You want to do something for acronym?" Then, I'd, <laughs> lol. Yeah, yeah. Then I'd be like, "A, why are you calling me about this?" And like, B, like, yes. And C, your jackets cost so much money. <laughs> this man is like, you know, it's like this man is one of my closest friends at this point, and it's like. The no discount thing is so like admirable at I once. I love but, like, no discount. No discount for anybody. You that's, can ask Kenzo. You can ask like any of us who like wear acronym. I admire that so much. So bless I, that man. I mean, because you know that is a pretty solid rule and tip to keep your friends just friends. Yeah. Because I mean, the, keep that shit separate. The waters get muddied so frequently. That's when things get ugliest. Like I like I see it all the time. Like amongst our friends. Like amongst. Other friends that I have, they're like, oh, man, like I started working with this person. I was doing her graphic design because she like helped me with this thing. And then it's like turning into this like horrible snowball thing. And I'm just like, yo, like especially when you're working with friends who like are closer to you, you got to make sure that everything that you're supposed to do is super dialed in. And like we've agreed to it literally in writing as corny as that sounds. Yeah. And and still 85% of the time don't do it. For sure. For sure. Like literally if it's not your mom, don't do it. <laughs> very, very important advice. So this is something that I've been dying to know for a really long time. What is the most effective way to get seated by Nike, like consistently? Oh, seated by Nike. Um, I mean, that was really like one of the first things that like incentivized me to work at Widen. I was like, <laughs> yo, these people make Nike ads. Give it to me. These people make Nike ads. Does that mean I get free Nikes? And the answer was yes. And, you <laughs> Is that know. forever? Because it's one of you. You get the email, and then it's like someone new at Nike asks for your sizes, and you get so excited. Yeah, I, I think it's like, I, my my guys have been around for a long time, and like I can't shout a lot of them out because like they don't want to be right bombarded by people bombarded like, by people asking. Um, and you know, so I always just do at Nike Lab or whatever. But um, it, I think actually I, that's a really good piece of advice. If you are being seated by someone, don't fucking tag them don't on fucking social. Tag them. Don't knock them out. Don't ever. Yeah. Don't knock them out. Um, but you know they know who they are, and everyone knows who they are. So it's like bless. That's true. But um, you know I think another piece of advice, if I could offer one, is like make sure your relationships are solid. Don't make sh like don't make them hinged on something transactional, like. You know, make sure that, you know, uh, there's something of value there and like, you know, the, the relationship is real and not just like something where you're just like constantly asking for stuff. Do you ever find that you have to hold your tongue when your friend asks you about their brand, just even in passing? It, my opinion of their brand? Yeah. No, never. Because I think like only a shitty friend would not tell you the truth. That's true. Um, I'm going to send you my novel. Um, <laughs> so what are some of the red flags when you're like, nah, I'm not fucking with you? In terms of like the way a business like communicates with you or the way their heads conduct themselves, like, is there like a solid thing? Yeah. I mean, you know, it's different at different phases. Like we could, you know, you could send me an email out of nowhere and it's just like a whack email. And I'm like, you sound like a horrible person who I can't, I just don't have the time. Like I can't. Actually, that's tr true. I remember someone was asking me to, um, do something for them 
and they wanted to set up a meeting. And I was just stuck in the CC hell of all these people being added about who was going to set up the call. And I was like, yeah. wow, I can't ever do a thing with you. That's another thing when it's like, yo, there are like 22, like there's too many people in this email thread right now. Yeah. Boom. You're done. Yeah. You're done. No, Unsubscribe. no one, no one is in charge of anything. So you've said that you don't fuck with most VC based startups. Mm -hmm. Why? Uh, this is a long one. Um, but broadly, I just think, um, everyone should read the book throwing rocks at the Google bus by Douglas Rushkoff. Um, I think he does a very good job of laying out. It's nowhere near as confrontational as the title sounds, but he does a really good job at explaining how corporatism has adversely affected, like the way businesses can work in tandem with like the community. Um, and mm. like just in, in, in tandem with like, uh, it's like spring studios. Exactly. Yeah. You can't just like drop in and like try to like squash the neighborhood with like an overwhelming amount of money or resourcing or whatever and expect things to go well. Um, but, uh, broadly it's because, uh, I just think, um, there's too much of an emphasis on accelerated growth and, uh, when, it, when you take VC backing. Um, because the you, clock starts, the clock starts yeah. like no LP is trying to stay in a company longer than they have to be. So you want to make as much return as you can, as quickly as you can and bounce. Um, and what that does is it means like, uh, what, what that means is that brand gets sacrificed. Like it really does. Like you are trying to develop, like Nike isn't what it is because they did like a consultant driven branding exercise for two months and then like figured their shit out. And no, like, they built folklore for so long, mad long. Like there's like mythologies around certain the shoes. Mythology is really so key to it. I mean, that's the thing. It's like the romanticism. Yo, like we're the generation that grew up on it. That's why none of us can like comfortably wear Adidas. I know it's really conflicted. I mean, I have ultra boost and I'm so conflicted and it's such a good soul. You know what I'm saying? It's like Nike is like seared in our minds and it, it, there's a reason for that. And it's not because it took two months to do. And I think a lot of startup founders, um, as, as intelligent as they are and as ambitious as they are, uh, have like a really uh, critical misunderstanding of what brand means and like what it takes to develop a solid brand um, and what it, because ultimately if you have a good brand, you're gonna do good things for your audience. Like you're thinking about your audience first and you're thinking about like all stakeholders in the equation of your business, not just like the people who put money in. And I think a lot of people get left out of that equation when you have to like focus on quarterly goals, quarterly growth goals, sprint goals. Like It's sort of like when VCs go into quote news, it's very much like the oh same thing. Oh my God, thing. did you read that other article that came out like a few days ago, how Silicon Valley took over journalism? No, it's like in the Atlantic. It's well, the it's most... definitely something where that I was just like, Ugh, I put it in my pocket and I was just like, I shall read you later when I have emotional bandwidth. Actually more soul crushing than somehow the Caspian Kang piece and oh God, the piece Jay's about piece quitting. Asian frats. Yeah. yeah, it's unbelievable. So good. So speaking of Asians, mm -hmm. um, you consult right now with 88 Rising. What, yeah. is, what is the short answer to what is it? Um, that's like a super delicate tightrope because there's so many presuppositions about what Asian anything means. Like as soon as you say it's an Asian, everyone's like already thinking in 80 different directions about what that means. Well, I mean, but the log line, I think like the sort of most basic distillation would be like, they're those dudes who put out the videos for like the higher brothers. Yeah. Operationally, and they launched Rich Chiga. 
Yeah. They launched the Higher Brothers. And, you know, for a lot of people in the United States, that means nothing. But I think it speaks to the larger thing about what 88 could be um, is that Asian concerns are global concerns. There's like billions of us on the planet. It's true. And, and so the fact that we're positioned as a minority viewpoint is like a really strange thing. And the fact that the United States thinks there's like the American media and entertainment industry feels like there's no marketability in Asian anything. Right. They still look at it as the 6%. It's a it's a complete it's either you're very naive or you're like really, really horribly racist. Well, that's the thing. I mean, well, one, we should definitely at some point in post puts, you know, that stick right here so people can remember what the song is. Mm-hmm. But so how do you feel? about, you know, the Asian export. Because Higher Brothers and Richika, Richika's from Indonesia. Yeah. Higher Brothers are from China. What do you think about this Asian export of what you could definitely argue is the appropriation of black culture? Wildly complicated. I Wildly think, complicated. I, I, I think you and I are part of a group of Asians, um, or our whole friend group of Asian people. Is like I think we're constantly baffled like when we all get together because it's like we're not people who like traditionally quote-unquote hung out with Asians or did the Asian student union thing. And so when but we, we, whenever CL puts a video out, we definitely get together. Exactly. <laughs> having like, conversations at Iggy Azalea. Like, oh my God, what is, <laughs> is this going to be the one? Um, so for me, um, yeah, it's, it's such a loaded thing. And uh, like Asian pop culture, like contemporary pop culture isn't based on a lot of precedent. There's not like you know, it's not like there's a rich R&B tradition that stretches back to blues in the 50s or whatever. And so, you know, Asia, East Asia, at least, is going through, besides Japan, is going through its like, so now I'm just like narrowing it down to Korea and China. I know, I was going to say, well, because I feel like Asian export, people tend to take look at it as this like monolithic view of like K-pop usually or K-dramas. Right. There's a lot of nuance to it. And again, like, it's such a fog to Western businesses and interests, but Asian pop culture by and large is going through its like punky phase in like this very social era, like the social media driven era in like a time where um, everything is hyper visible and like a lot of barriers have been broken down. I like, mean, literally where Rich Shiga is learning English from YouTube. YouTube, TV, Vine. Vine, yeah, totally. You know what I'm saying? And so it's like, to me, one thing that was like really problematic was like he said he drops the N-word really hard in that stick. He drops the N-word really hard in that stick and doesn't walk back from it not but at the same time i'm like you're 16 you literally never like you had no contact with the states beyond how the union how the united states externalizes itself via media and actually even in all the interviews afterwards because brian is still a tiny baby child he's He's a a very tiny baby child like the next song that he's putting out is about his birthday right (laughs) and he's like and i'm like wait you're wait right and so with that in mind it is you do not definitely, and I'm not saying this necessarily excuses him if, if you know, because, I mean, I, I find it personally really egregious as someone who lives here, but he had no idea it was going to hit. He had no idea any of it was going to hit. And, you know, even like with him, like changing his Instagram, like his, his Instagram handle is his government name. Right. Right. And like, I think in like the interviews with Pharrell and with the New Yorker, I thought he was very smart, um, especially for a 16 year old kid a 17-year-old kid to um, uh, the way he handled those questions that were asked of him. Like, you know, I, I think he acknowledged, like, he he owned the problem. Um, and it's clear that he's, like, internalized the lessons from it. And he's, like, you know, he's a teenager. He's, he's going to grow. 
Um, and I think when, you know, I spend a lot in the, in the few weeks that I spent with him, with him around the office, like, it's very clear to me that the kid is very absorbent and he's figuring out ways like to, um, be a positive, uh, contributor to the culture as opposed to someone who's exploiting it. So what are your thoughts? Do you know what Coco Avenue or who Coco Avenue are? No. It's a black African-American specifically K-pop now duo used to be a group and they sing in Korean mm -hmm. and they do a lot of like K-pop covers. And obviously this is just framing Asian culture again in, mm -hmm. in K-pop. But I watched a clip of them when they were in Korea and they, they said it kind of started out like shallow. They, they loved the music. They loved the visual, the dances, the optics. And then, and they were just fans. And the, the more we started to watch, the more we became uncomfortable with K-pop's portrayal of our culture and music without understanding where it comes from. Mm -hmm. What do you think about that? Uh, so I think largely this is loops back to like your original question of what I think 88 could be. Mm. Um, I think whether or not you like it, uh, whether you like it or not, like uh, the trend in culture is that it's going to keep blurring. Um, yeah, it's really weird. It's almost like um, if the Harajuku girls started a Gwen Stefani cover band. That's right. Of like, Gwen Stefani mimicking kawaii and no matter if you want to like write a you know 3500 word think piece on that or like be upset about it on twitter or really be into it and like you know follow every account that like whatever side of the fence you sit on the fence is coming down and like um the name of the game is just transmission in all directions now it's not there's no longer a thing where it's like you know you referenced this so you fucked up I mean, well, sure. I mean, and people talk about ownership a lot. And it, it just, it does, it feels thorny as hell. I mean, so like, you know, when Jaden Smith is like, I'm going to start a K-pop career, stuff. like that somehow is very kosher or is it? What really scares me is that I think context matters less and less today. Right. And I think we live in a time where the audience that everyone wants to hit is about um, possessing, not processing. So you just want to have it. You just want to think about it. You don't want to think about it at all. You just want to have it. You just want to like be there for it. And right. so on we're and so such forth. little, we're such earthworms. We just like eat and shit and eat and shit and eat and shit and eat and shit. And that, and that's literally how we move through space. Now. That's right. And you know, I criticize a lot of things that I feel fuel that openly online, but yeah, very opinionated. <laughs> yeah, but often I also think to myself on an existential level, do I just need to get over that? Like, is that just the way sure, it's going to go? Sure, and sometimes I wonder if it's like our, not to say you and I are the same age, because I believe I'm several years older than you, but like, I feel like our generation in a lot of ways is the last one to even begin to question it. Like, I, my generation certainly, I feel like, is definitely the last one to be like, is selling out even a thing? That's right. And by that, I just mean... You know, obviously I'm not equating that to appropriation or whatever, but it is, I don't even know how to define K-pop at this point, really. No. Like when Jaden Smith says, I'm doing a K-pop record beyond like, I'm best friends with G-Dragon now, like literally. When you have uh, an industry that says like indiscriminately uh, appropriative as K-pop is, like I, at a certain point, it's just going to mutate really quickly into this thing that you can't even really describe because the identity is not founded on anything and it right. just shifts whenever you try to box it in. 
You look like you're doing like liquid as a raver or something. Yeah. Um, is CL problematic? No, I just think CL, uh, more than problematic, I just think she's largely ineffectual and she's like representative of like. I think that's my beef with her too. She's not as good as I need her to be. Here's my thing. Like the Korean media tried to get CL to be the crossover thing, right? Like that she was supposed to be the one. Like we're going to give her every opportunity. Like Scooter Braun, literally. Yeah, Diplo, yeah. you name it. Like we're going to. We're going to give her every, we're going to do every single thing on the roadmap to get her to be the crossover artist. There, it's no surprise to me that Sai is the one who actually crossed over. Sai mm. is the one who set all the records. He's the one who put the numbers up. And you got to remember. On because his seventh studio album or whatever it was. That's like, what I'm saying. When people sun Sai for being like a, a joke, it like, you A, you probably don't speak Korean or like understand the references in his videos. And also know his history as quite a subversive person within the infrastructure. A subversive person who no one in the record, the music industry Fucks in Korea was with. fucking with. Yeah. He did all that by himself. And Which, to give people a little bit of background, you can't, like, the fucking oligarchy in there's Korea, no in, it's crazy. There's no indie anything in Korea. And like, that's just a thing that's starting to happen now. But like when Psy was coming up, certainly none of that existed. So for him to have accomplished that, it speaks to the universal appeal of something that is really true to yourself. And again, to cynically loop it back, his brand is very authentic. Mm. Like that's a real brand. Like you're getting exactly, you're getting very Korean humor, like unapologetically Korean humor. Like you and I are going to understand things about that, that some of our friends here are just never going to comprehend. But it's also funny because it's just fucking funny. Right. Like that's going to stick. Because he's so trolly. That's going to stick. And so, so CL recently, well, not recently, I'm lying. She's in that like CNN mini docufollow thing or whatever. She says, when I'm creating, I don't think about the fact that I'm Asian. And to me, that's just like such a detonation because I'm like, first of all, like the privilege is disgusting. Second right. of all, is like, is that even true? Like, how can that be true? Then I'm just like, that's why you fucking up. Like, you thinking is you thinking as an Asian. Like, you're... Guess what? Yeah, totally. Too bad. Like, you're, <laughs> you're who you are. Um, and your identity is inherently loaded into your thought process. Right. And, yeah. You can't escape that. So, I want to actually talk further about Asian culture vis-a-vis America. And I think the sort of, like, catch-all, and obviously this is, like, taxonomically just lazy but it's like Yao Ming versus Jeremy Lin like the whole direct import versus homegrown product from a cultural minority diaspora you know the kid was born in Torrance went to Harvard you know mm -hmm. do you think it's easier to get traction in America as a higher brothers or a k-drama like I don't know like boys over flowers or something than a movie like crazy rich Asians mm. that's like Asian American like <coughs> product I um, I want to say this is similar to the Adidas Nike thing. Mm. Like you can do the novelty hype thing, or you can go for the long haul. Is the long haul crazy rich Asians, or is the long haul? Which... I don't think the long haul is crazy rich Asians, but I think crazy rich Asian Asians plays into like how we get towards the long haul. Like the long haul is clumsy. The long haul is difficult. The long haul is expensive, but. It's like ultimately the thing that's going to help like figure out what the full breadth of our voice and identity is. I just emotionally have so much riding on this fucking movie doing something. We're like, going to be heartbroken. 
Do you think so? 100%. So we're never, ever going to get like our best man holiday at the box office? I don't think so. When I look at people like um, Hassan Minaj, when I look at people like Steven Yun, um, when I look at people like Kumail Najani, that stuff is heartening to me because it's like, it speaks to the thing that I think is going to really help us figure out our place in what is literally like the race relations binary in the United States. I think... um, Allowing us to be included in the conversation without like putting a label on us like immediately before we even step in the room. That's all we want like to participate in the conversation on our terms. Right. And I think Steve, I think Hassan uh, with, you know, both like Okja, Walking Dead and Homecoming Did you like Okja? I loved Okja. I thought it was a fucking mess. It was a mess, but... You know, like, I, like I, every white person in that movie, I was like, uh, aside from T- Tilda, who still has a huge asterisk on, on her face. But it's really funny to me because it speaks to the disconnect again between like Asian culture and American culture and how they perceive each other. I think Pong Juno writes uh, white characters, Western characters. From the lens of. <laughs> like how he's digesting Western culture, right, and which then, is how Western culture exports itself. So he's not looking at it as like, oh, this is like super exaggerated because how Western culture exports itself to the, to Asia is like, it is that, like, that's how it looks. And then, so when Pong Juno writes those characters, then Western actors read that and they're like, oh, he wants me to fucking. Yeah. An Asian guy wants me to, yeah. He wants me to wild out. Uh, Well, I don't know. And I mean, not that we're not contributing with this entire conversation, but. Isn't there just like a fucking super first world aspect to yellow people problems? Like the way that we talk about them. It's, you know, like I think that Asians in New York City are the the minority who are like the poorest. And yet whenever Asian problems come to light, other than Jay Caspian Kang's wonderful. Um, read that, read uh, that, yeah, read that, read that, that, read that, read that, read that article. That, it's crazy. Um, you know, it, it it's often just like, whitewashing in Hollywood like that literally sounds like the biggest beef that we have in this country which is just like so not I mean this is like a whole other pod I know I just like, I've been th- you know what I got naturalized today and I'm an American citizen as of today oh wow what a year to get naturalized and the entire time and the reason I did it was because simultaneously I really wanted to vote and I was really down to just have a green card forever yeah but I, I really had to vote and but it was it's really hard. I feel very deeply conflicted about being an Asian American now. Yeah. Because I always just said I am an Asian living in America because I had my Korean passport and that was it. Definitely read Jay's article because he has like a great paragraph embedded in there about like Asian American and, and the what loneliness that means. Yeah. and like yeah. But also what that means or doesn't mean as a designator. And like <sighs> it's just like yeah, I don't I don't know. It's we could go on for hours about this. Yeah, we could. Maybe we really genuinely will. So you don't think Crazy Rich Asians is going to do it. I need for it to do it, but it probably won't. I mean, I guess like set your expectations, right? Like I think we, I want it. Well, even if it's like a girl. We do this every time with like every single Asian thing that like hits. <laughs> like even with 88, even with Crazy Rich Asians, like everything has to be all of it. I know. I mean, otherwise it failed. That's honestly why you consult for 88, right? You're just like, yeah, you're, you're our dog in the race. Yeah. I'm like, you know. Whether or not I agree with everything, Sean has built a thing that is legitimately putting numbers up, and it's like to the point where people have to pay attention to it, and people certainly are. And so I I'm just like, I find it just interesting that people are paying attention to it, and but it's Asia from 
Asia. Yeah. But it's all, it's like, it, it is in like, it's very formative, goopy stages right now. Right. Not goopy like. <laughs> Gwyneth Not goopy like crystals in your vagina yeah. cleanse thing. Um, yeah. Last, last time's pod was all about that. So <laughs> I know that you read a lot. Yep. You consume a lot. Yep. Um, what is your media diet like? Uh, I think wildly unhealthy if people. I mean, actually, no, I worry about you. Me and my boyfriend talk about you sometimes when we're both. I quit. I mean, I, I don't have Twitter on my phone or Instagram on my phone Good anymore. And it's been a month and it's like reprogramming my brain. And it's going you. very well. But sometimes I'll look at it from my browser and I'll be like, I'm worried about Phil. <laughs> He's, yeah, he's eating too much. I, I think I look very silver hat, like silver tinfoil hatty, a lot of the time. But for me, you know, um, just from a logistic level, like if I'm freelancing at an office or whatever, I can't read everything at once. And I just tried to like load everything in pocket for a while, and it just wasn't sticking. So I just throw everything on Facebook, and then I get home, and people are commenting on it, and then I'll read it. Oh, so you haven't read everything by the time you post it. Not all of it. Oh, so Maybe it's, more one or like two a, things. it's more like a coffee talk. You're it, like, it's an extremely selfish thing that people, for whatever reason, respond to. Huh. You're a farce. I'm a farce. <laughs> but I do read it all eventually. No, sure. So the, the one thing I will say about you is that I do know that you don't just throw it up on Facebook, that you do consume your friend's output yeah. semi-religiously. Yeah. And you have a lot of friends. How do you do that? Do you dedicate time to do that? Um, I think the friend, like... I'm friends with people who I'm genuinely fascinated by. Like a lot of what makes me want to be around people is like, is what, what you do super interesting to me. Um, on a selfish level, that's one of my things. And so, you know, I buy everything that you do. I buy everything that Rembert does. I buy everything, like literally all our friends, like, you know, I'm, I'm gonna go support. I'm gonna buy 15 tickets. I'm gonna like, it's just, it's really nice. As your friend who sees that you go to all my other friends' things when I am on couch lock and on deadline, like, it's, you're like the one, you're like our one good friend. <laughs> well, no, I'm, I, I would hope, you know, I think it's just like, you know, everyone, like all of us, New York is fucking expensive, man. Like, it's, it's not easy to get by here. And like, I think the only way it happens is like, if we stick up for each other and if we just support each other however we can. So I'm happy to do that. I'm like genuinely stoked on everything everyone's doing. Like the It's the Real Boys, for instance, like put together somehow, they got Rockefeller together, like all of Rockefeller to talk about the history, like the rise and fall of Rockefeller records. If you grew up in our generation, like aside from me being their friend, if you grew up in our generation, how are you not going to go to that? It's like... You're talking about like the soundtrack to your adolescence. Right. Totally. Um, I did not go to that, but I believe I was out. But of you town. don't. You don't go to anything. So I don't go fine. to anything. I'm like a weird shut-in. Um, so you are definitely the guy I call for like restaurant suggestions mm -hmm. and everything. Um, I can't read it, anyways. I, I just moved my question. So, um, <laughs> favorite restaurant right now in your life of like this month? Oh shit! Like in New York? Yes. Oh man. favorite restaurant right now so um i think my favorite restaurant in new york right now despite how 
Well, actually, there's a funny one. It's not necessarily a restaurant, but it's where I like find myself working when I don't have to freelance out of an office and just eating everything they have and like drinking wild Taiwanese tea. It's called Tea Company. Hmm. Where it's, is it? It's in like the entryway of uh, a small brownstone on like I want to say West Tenth and like off off Sixth Avenue. Okay. Like literally, you got to like go into the foyer kind of thing, and it's. Uh, two people and like there are several employees who have like found the most obscure Taiwanese teas and like just do incredible food. And I just sit there like all day writing and stuff and like going through whatever I have to do because no one goes there and now everyone's going to go there. You did it. I did it. This you, is the thing. Right? Like, yeah. Um, so what kind of stuff do you write? Also, well, the other thing, like, I think just a, a restaurant that's managed to, like, live up to the hype and sustain is Olmsted. Uh, Olmsted is super popping. It's, like, everything you want a, rest, a neighborhood restaurant to be. Like, if you're, if you're around Prospect Park, um, you should definitely, definitely go to Olmsted. Like, it's impossible to get a reservation, but just do the annoying, like, one month ahead thing. And go and, you know, try to go before the summer's out because they got a whole backyard thing and like a garden too. Mm, cute. You can like, you can take home like herbs from the garden if you like help them pot new ones and stuff. Oh shit, nice. Yeah. That's like, cute for you. That's cute. That's really cute. It's super popping. The food is great. And like it just. What kind of cuisine is it? I've never been. It's like um, the guys used to be at, I believe, um, Blue Hill. Well, Stone Barns is still my favorite restaurant. Exactly. It's so like, ooh, like overplayed old and whatever, but I love it. Yeah. And it's so, just a great dining experience. It's just, it's hard to beat. My boy Kevin just moved from San Francisco and he's cooking there. Oh, shit. Yeah. Like, um, but Olmstead, definitely peep that. What is your favorite street in New York? Ah, oh, my favorite street in New York. <sighs> It doesn't even have to be like your favorite, just that one where you walk it, you're like, ah, like, I'm so grateful to live here. You know, uh, broadly, it's it's 10th Avenue. Like, I'll walk, I'll do like the zigzag gallery circuit mm. um, on like Thursdays whenever there's new art up. And uh, that feels like one of the giant luxuries of living in this city that you can't replicate anywhere else. Like, you just get the illest free art of if life. New York feeds you, it's true. Between, like, 15th and 25th or whatever, it's like, yo, like, there's so many ways that you can engage with culture here without having to try. And that, to me, is what makes New York still feel like the center of the world in so many ways. Are you going to stay here forever? I'm, like, pretty rooted down here. Yeah, it's just that you're just stuck here like me. If there's a place that... There isn't. We know there isn't. There isn't. We've, I, I mean, don't know why. We both, like, We're wasting time thinking totally. about Totally. So who who are some Asians you look up to the most? Miss Info, our mutual friend Minya Oh. I think when I found out she was Asian, that like exploded my skull. That, that explodes skull for sure because... Tsunami song for me. Oh, that whole entire imbroglio... I mean, the way she handled that on air, like put herself out there, that like forever to me is like, yo, what? Um, so anything Minya says goes. Uh, cool con Pete. Um, Pete's great. Pete's the man. Like if if you don't know, Pete was the, you know, I don't know what you want to call them, uh, the lead designer, creative director at Supreme for Mad Long. 
like he did the blazers that everyone loves the first north face collapse (laughs) (laughs) he's the guy and you'll never talk about it like he also like quietly saves the day for like stucy and undefeated whenever they like fuck up um and he was also a rapper on def chucks and he's from Queens, Korean dude. As Asians go, he's definitely... Yo, like, for a kid who, like, grew up on backpack rap as much as he did, like, anything else, like, figuring out that Pete was Korean, because you see that on his record that he painted, you're, like, another moment where you're just like, yo, I feel like my nose is bleeding. Um, Day One Song is another one. Like, for, you know, like, Korean kids who didn't want to be uh, a doctor, lawyer, or, like, Samsung employee... When they grew up, you didn't have many people to look up to. And day one, like, you know, you'd see skate videos. Like if you grew up like painting graffiti and hanging out with skate kids and stuff. And so like when you saw day one versus Rodney Mullen, it was just like, yo, this is a Korean dude. And he's like doing some shit that you just like, like gravity defying shit. Um, Jim Lee, another one, like. He's the first one that you're a kid and you're like, I hope this guy's Korean based off his last name. Right, right, name. right. Because you never know with Please, Lee. Please, God. Please, God. <laughs> not, like, not, not one of these Jason Don't be like an Australian Lees. dude. Yeah, totally. Um, but, he, you know, when you, like, just how, just the cut, like, X-Men. Like, it's what I grew up on. Also, like, his style being so oh iconic, Oh, my God. Too, his yeah. style. Like, he defined it all. Like, he, he, he defined an era. Like, comics have gone through, like, macro era shifts in aesthetic and Jim Lee really like brought in the prevailing aesthetic um, that we grew up on and it's just like fuck man like that dude and then other Peter Chung who did Aeon Flux yeah dude but unsung hero (sighs) unsung hero but that guy's a fucking visionary man like his his animatrix clips like just the way that he was able to get all these like super heavy intellectual pieces through the filter of like fucking MTV and Viacom and like totally. make Liquid things happen. Television. Oh my God, yeah. come on. Like you, like if you want to learn how to sell work, like find out what those people's processes are. Cause these are all people who have done really unlikely things. They were like the first of us who got to do it. The first of us who got to do it when there was like even less of a chance in a platform. Yeah. Um, so those guys are all people I look up to. So how does an Asian kid like you who went to a good school convince their parents that you're not throwing your life away? Uh, I don't know. It really depends on your parents. Did you have to um, teach your parents to be accepting of the life you chose? Yeah. I, I mean, had to for break my, my parents. For me, with my dad, I think my dad saw it a lot clearer because he's always been an entrepreneur his whole life. Like, you know, we're not a family. Like, he... he he didn't have an inheritance. Like he left home at 16, went to live in San Francisco in like the back of a restaurant, then joined the Air Force. Like, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, there's no. You, you come from a wayward Korean? He's not a wayward Korean. My granddad was just like, you're out after high school. Like you got to huh. figure your shit out. That's wild. Yeah. And so he like, you know, I went to a good school in Korea and everything, but like my parents definitely like their lives could have been a lot different had they not been so invested in like Eric and my education. Eric's your brother. Eric's my brother. Like, very, very different. And, um, you know, we're not a family that grew up with, like, yeah, you know, you're just going to, like, live in this apartment building that we own forever. Right. Here's your Benz that we used to drive. Exactly. And here's the driver and the staff, all that shit. It wasn't like that. And so um, my dad has always been an entrepreneur at heart. Like, he did a long stint where he was, you know, working for banks and stuff like that. But ultimately... He started his own company, and um, so he's and he's done that for like the past however many years, 
Um, and so he always obviously had like a grasp on like the concept of doing your own thing. Uh, my mom was, took a lot longer to come around to it. And I think she's only just starting to now because she sees that it's like, oh, he hasn't, he, you know, he hasn't asked for help. He, right. He, like the house hasn't burned down. He's not moving back to Korea. He's not like, you know, he's not dead on the street somewhere. Where do your parents live right now? They live in Korea? Yeah, my parents live in Seoul. How long has that been going on? Uh, since we moved back when we were little. How old were you? Uh, first grade. Huh. Yeah. And then when did you move here? Uh, so I, in 04, after I graduated high school, moved back to the States for college. Okay. Huh. Fascinating. So yeah. you grew up in Asia. I'm a reverse fob. Huh. I grew, I mean, as, a, as an Asian person who also grew up in Asia, it's, it's different. I'm a reverse fob. It's like very, it's even stranger than like the Asian American issues that so many people like grapple with. No, it's, it's like loaded twice. Yeah. And it's even weird because, you know, like the international school I went to small class sizes, like 70 people in my class, maybe like 200 people in the whole school. Um, and there's like 50 countries represented. So you grow up thinking that's the norm. No, I grew up in an international private school as well. Yeah. Huh. We're same, same. Some. So my final question to you, because you cut me off rudely to talk about Olmsted, but what kind of writing do you do? What kind of writing do I do? Um, it ranges vastly from uh, like essays on things that I'm like annoyed about. Like being- Screeds and diatribes? Being annoyed really drives me to write. <laughs> cool. Being annoyed generally drives my process because I, it's super healthy, but like- I don't know. It's just what does it. It's the best fuel. I feel like your burn rate is a little problematic. Definitely. How long is this going to go on for? What, me being annoyed? No, just, yeah. Not Because you're not like righteous indignation, like crazy burning. It's just this I'm like, a very I told you so kind of person. <laughs> Korean. My favorite thing, and also a big reason why I post mad shit on Facebook, is because my receipt game is tight. I remember what I wrote like years down the line. And then I'll like look up that post bring it back when like the thing comes to fruition and be like, ha. So basically your entire life on social media is based on a series of grudges that you're just festering in your heart. Yeah. Like, and it just comes from like, you know, so much about the advertising industry and marketing and all that stuff is actually liability management. Like everyone says they want to do like the next big thing, the next groundbreaking thing. Like we want to break stuff. We want to like make new shit happen. No one wants to do that. Most people operate under the assumption that they're not going to get fired if they don't rock the boat on the client side. And so they just want the thing. That's why everyone's like still like, well, what if we got ASAP Rocky to do something? Like we're still talking about that. And it's just a nightmare. So like my favorite thing is to like go home and be like, I told you to do this. You didn't do it. I'm going to post about it. <laughs> and then in a year when that shit goes down and it's too expensive for you to do the thing, I'm going to bring that back and put it in your face. What do you want to be doing in like 20 years? In 20 years, I hope the friction between like getting my ideas uh, from point A to B is like significantly reduced. Um, if you I want can, it just to be like a luge. Yeah. Like. How rich do you want to be? Um, for me, as long as like I can. Uh, I don't know, like. It's hard, right? Yeah, obviously, like, you know, if it's open-ended, yeah, I'd like to be staggeringly rich. Like, I'd like to be 
abstractly wealthy to the point where I could like vanish for a year and travel around the world and just like not take clothes with me. Cause I can just That's like, not actually that much money. I've crunched it. So my ambitions have been framed as like <laughs> super humble, <laughs> uh, by my proxy, big sister, Mary. So <laughs> apparently I don't want to be that rich. I just, <laughs> no, I really, I've, I've, I've crunched the math. It's not that much money. I don't know. Like that shit scares me because it's like, it's so relative. Right. And then like, as See, soon as you like have the choice to do something, you're not going to have the choice to do another thing. And then I think you need to untether yourself. What do you mean? Like, I think, I think you should do a social media sabbatical. Yeah. And yeah, I think you need to sort of re-jigger your crosshairs. I, in a, like, I deleted Instagram and Twitter the other day. Good. But then. You couldn't read your Instagram private messages, so you're like, damn it. And then yeah, you're like, Yeah, and then I re <laughs> it. And then I relabeled this folder on my phone as shit. Fair. So it's like baby steps. I'm proud of you. Now it's called shit. Um, so I'm hoping, like, just by osmosis, the negative reinforcement makes me, like, get off it. Probably not. You're probably just filled with the same self-loathing. But I miss, like, you know, the days when we'd have, like, fucking Zangas and, like... You know what? I think that you and I, one of these days, and Rembrandt should come, too, is we're just going to spend a day not doing anything on social and talking about things and being slightly bored at certain parts of the day and, like, looking at things. Fire. I'm okay. with that. Cool. Wear comfortable shoes. Oh, we're, like, outside. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> on that note... <laughs> Thanks for coming by, Phil. This was wonderful. Thanks for having me, Mary. Bye. Bye. I'm in love with my